So it's a new series. It's called The Hope of Glory. Now, if you're, you're new to faith life, you might not be familiar with what we do, but we're kind of intermixing. Sometimes we preach right through a book of the Bible, which is what this is going to be. Other times we pick a theme or talk about it. And, and right over the summer, we talked about being brave and trusting God and then, how to, uh, and then building faith, how to build your faith so that it's a faith that outlasts the bad circumstances and you come out the other side of it. So we talked about that over the summer. And uh, basically, I, I guess for right through until the, the run-up to Christmas now, we're going to be looking at a book of the Bible. And that book of the Bible is Colossians. And so I came back from holiday to find out that, like, oh, we did that last week. We preached on Colossians chapter 1 last week, which is fantastic. And somebody came out and read the passage from Colossians, apparently. And, and so you're all ahead of me. So you, all, you know all the answers. So when I ask questions, you'll be all right, won't you? Um, just before that, I, wanna, I just want to say something about how uh, important the word is. Because we can take it lightly. And, and by lightly, what I mean is this, that, that we can hear the word and do nothing with it. And we can hear the word and go, yeah, that's right and yet not actually apply it in our own life. And hearing the word and, and, and acknowledging it's right and going, yeah, I believe that's right, actually won't get you anywhere. And I was, you know, those moments when you're really challenged by God. I had one of those on uh, Wednesday morning. So first morning back from my holiday, uh, I went to talk to the team at the YWAM base in Cambridge. And I was talking about uh, th how the Word and the Spirit work together. And uh, as I was talking, one of the, 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 the verses that I'd picked, it's not in Colossians, but you'll get the point in a minute, uh, was John 8, 31 and 32. Now, most of you will love verse 32, which says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So how many of you want to be free? So you need to know how to do it, don't you? So how do you get free? You need to know the truth. Unfortunately, you can't read that apart from verse 31 that goes with it. And verse 31 says this. If you abide in my word and my words abide in you, then you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So there's something about abiding in the word of God that enables the truth to get in your heart, the Holy Spirit to uh, give that life and set you free. Yeah? So I, was, I thought, oh, that's a good point. Good point, Mark, I was thinking. And, and you know, right in the middle of it, you think, God, why did you pick that moment? Because right there, I was talking about abiding in the word and the word abiding in you. That word abiding means to dwell in. It means to live it to make it the way you do your life. So Jesus said, really, guys, you need to be doers of this. You need to do this, and you need to dwell in this. And this, is, this needs to be the way you live your life. And I'm thinking, oh, man, that's challenging. And he said, if you do that, you're really my disciples. And then, God being God, you know what he did? He said, so if you're not doing that, you're not really a disciple. You're not really. And I'm going like, 
man, I wish I, I'm glad I didn't say that. I'm glad Jesus said it. If I said that, they'd be like, but Jesus is really saying that he's not talking about whether you're saved or not. He's not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. He's talking about, are you really a disciple? Are you going to do anything with this salvation that I gave you? Are you going to do, um, are you, you going to actually live it or are you just going to talk about it? Is it going to be your life or is it an add-on? And he's saying, you've got a choice. You can be a disciple or not. And what to be a disciple, to really be a disciple of mine, you've got to live this word. And I'm going like, okay. I, I, see, I had one of those moments where I was like struck dumb. I, I know you'll find that hard to believe for me, but I, I'm going like, I have no idea what I'm going to say now. So I just said that to them. And, and, we, and we went from there and talked about the difference between... Uh, you know, knowing the word and doing the word and so on. And it was, we had a great morning. So through this series, I want you to try and take this in a way that it becomes part of you and you do it. Yeah? Because what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to walk through this book uh, from the beginning to the end. We're not doing like we did with Hebrews, starting in the middle and planning out. We're going to go from the beginning to the end. And... Let me tell you a little bit about uh, the letter to the Colossians. How did this letter come about? This letter came about, strangely, in, in, a, in a way that uh, not many of Paul's letters did. And to, to give you a bit of background, I need, to, I need to take you to Acts chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. What's happened is Paul... Uh, you see, the way Paul started churches and the way Paul evangelized virtually, you know, the, the Roman Empire single-handedly, the way he did this is he, he went to particular locations and he, he first went in as an evangelist. He found some people and he got them saved. He led them to Christ. And then he, 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 he trained those people how to relate to God in their own strength rather than relying on him. And then he moved on. That was his method. That was his method of planting churches. Uh, because he trusted that the Holy Spirit would then enable that work to grow. Because he, he knew, like Peter was told, that Jesus builds his church, not us. So he, he had this in mind. Now, what happened is that in Acts, so he goes, he's going about doing that, and in Acts 19, something goes wrong with his strategy. He goes into, he goes into Ephesus, and he finds some disciples, people who were like listening to him, uh, who had not heard the whole gospel. They'd only heard part of it. So they were interested, and they were following him about, but they hadn't heard the whole of it. So what he did is he, he led them to Christ, and he got them filled with the Spirit. Good start, isn't it? So he stays there three months doing what he normally does, uh, showing them how to uh, grow in God themselves, how to hear the voice of the Spirit, how to uh, hear the Word, how to learn from the Word, how to apply it in their life. So he, he does all that. And then we get to Acts 19, verses 9 to 10. And we'll just turn there. So turn with me. I know it's on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, check me out. I could be fibbing to you up there, couldn't I? Is it not on there? There it is. See, it is now. Acts 19, 9 10. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, uh, the way is how they called Christianity, before they started calling it Christianity. So we're talking 
spoke evil of those Christians, is what he's saying. Spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples and reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That is really significant, because this is actually the only time that Paul stays anywhere for any length of time. What he's done is he switches his strategy, and he realizes, and, and it's a result of this opposition um, from non-believing Jews, effectively. Non-believing Jews, people who didn't want to be, Jews who didn't want to become Christians, they, they, this opposition comes up. And he moves from evangelism to training mode. And what happens here is, uh, basically, he hires a room, and people come in and out during the day. So he's, he's teaching them. And, and, and so this guy called Epaphras, who's heard of Epaphras? Yeah? Try saying it quick six times. Epaphras. No, I didn't mean to really do it. <laughs> but this guy called Epaphras, he comes into school. He's, he's, in, he's uh, on business, and he becomes a disciple. And Paul trains him. Epaphras, go, he's from Colossae, and at the end of his uh, training period, he goes back to Colossae. And Epaphras plants his church. So when Paul is writing to this church, what he's, uh, he's effectively doing, he's writing to people in a church. By the way, Epaphras was kind of good. He, he planted the church in Laodicea and the church in Aeropolis as well. So he, he knew what he was doing. Um, but Paul, in, in this letter, he's writing to people that, in a church that he didn't start, he's never met, he's never been to, he didn't teach them, and he never goes to. So it's kind of, it's a remote letter. So what, 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 what's happening is Epaphras has asked him to help him out with some of the questions and some of the problems that are coming up in a new church. Now, I think that's really interesting because... We often think problems is a bad sign. But the reality is, when you're doing anything for God, you're going to get problems and you're going to get opposition. And so Paul is looking after this church and he's helping Epaphras with this church to deal with the opposition and deal with the enemy activity. And, you know, any work of God is messy. Any work of God has opposition. Any work of God has challenges. Any work of God has things that go wrong. And sometimes we can, you know, we can behave as Christians like, well, it's all, it's all a mess because that one tiny point, they've got that wrong. Or I didn't like that. Or this is wrong. So, or that's gone wrong. Or it's not what it used to be. And, and that, is really just the enemy stirring stuff up to get us off our mission. And so what Epaphras has done, he's writing to Paul and he's saying, help me get back, help me get these guys back on mission in 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 a way that 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 you're able to to do. And the way Paul gets them back on mission, so I'll tell you this right up front, the way he gets them back on mission, he says, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he's done. There's nothing else to talk about apart from Jesus, is what he's saying. Now, 
if you, when you came in, you should have been given a card. If you came in late, you might not have got one. But there's, there's cards there. Can somebody wave one? This is a little cartoon summary of the entire book of Colossians. What I want you to do is I want you to have it in front of you. And then I want you to have a look at it when you get home. And then I want you to fold it in half. I know that's sacrilege, but I want you to fold it. And I want you to bring it back next week and the week after. And, and use it right through this series because it, it's kind of a summary and it helps you remember. If, you know, help you to remember the bits that, that you don't remember that I've said. But you'll see on there, there's a big picture of Jesus on the left-hand side because it's all about him. And so I've called this the hope of glory because it's got that, that famous verse in Christ in you, the hope of glory, because it talks about who Jesus is and then he talks about who he is in you. And, uh, but actually, I could have also called it, and I did ponder it for a while, called Jesus the one and only. There is nobody like Jesus never was and never will be. He is above all, in all, through all. Everything was created for him, and through him all things were made, and through him all things exist, and through him all things are sustained. There's nobody like Jesus. He's the only one worth living your life for. Everybody else and everything else is pale in comparison. And so the theme of Colossians, so write this down if you like, want to be a good student, the theme of Colossians is the headship of Christ. The theme of Colossians is the headship of Christ, how he's above everything. And that has certain things. You know this, don't you, that he's the head and we're the body. Now, that, that has an application to it. And the application is this. As long as the body takes its direction from the head, it's in good shape. Yeah, as long as the body is following the head, it's in good shape. If the body is detached from the head, it's got a bleed-out problem. Yeah? Because we are meant to be following Jesus. We are followers of Christ. And when we, when we become Christians, what Jesus asks of us is to follow him and do his mission that he's on in conjunction with him. So we want to be a body that is not detached from the head. We want to be a body that looks like the head. Yeah? We don't want to be kind of like a bit of a, a, a Frankenstein or a Deadpool where there's just different bits of different bodies all stuck together and they don't match. You want the head to match the body and the body to match the head. So we need to start looking like Jesus. And the way we look like Jesus is we follow him. We follow him and we do what he says. That's how we start to look like Jesus. Now, what it also means is this. As is believers, we have a responsibility to manifest resurrection life in our lives. Let me say that again. You have a responsibility as a believer to manifest resurrection life in your life. So when we look at ourselves, we want to go, we want to look at it and say, how much of that life that is in me is the world outside seeing? Because our goal is that the world outside sees more of the life of Christ in us. That's what we were born again for, to, to, to sort of be life to other people. 
to live life where people go, I can tell they belong to Jesus. And so, you know, going back to that challenge that I had at YWAM, is like, can people tell that I'm like Jesus? Do they see him? When, do, when, do they encounter him when they encounter me? Or do they just encounter somebody who's a, a work colleague, a, somebody at the library or whatever? Or do, are they encountering Jesus? And so my uh, mentality is for them to encounter more of Jesus. Now, when we, we talk about following Jesus and, and um, being Christians, that doesn't guarantee or even mean that we get a life free from problems. You know, we're not, we're not trying to sell something that is problem-free, worry well, we are trying to get worry out of the way because God's capable of handling it, but not problem-free, not difficulty-free, and certainly not enemy activity-free or other people's messes-free. And, and so what, we, what we're about as believers is trusting God to take us through those and come out the other side stronger and looking more like Jesus. And that's what we, we talked about for three or four months over the summer. So, when we get to this church called Colossae, you would think like, oh, one problem's enough for a church, isn't it? They have three problems. Three problems. Say three. Three problems. They've got three problems. Now, basically what's happened is that they, they, they planted a church and they planted it in an area where they've had, like, been worshipping like multiple gods and there's all sorts of strange ideas going around. And these people have just joined the church. And they've come into the church. And what you've got is you've got a bit of a marketing exercise on where you've got people from outside the church and inside the church trying to pull away those who are inside the church to their latest glitzy ideas or their, their own particular take on things and their own particular whatever. And it's causing a problem. So Epaphras writes to Paul and he says, this, this, this is the problems. This, this is what's happening in my church. Now, you go, well, this is like 2,000 years ago. Let's come back to me. Well, it matters to you because these are the problems that happen in churches now. It's not changed because the enemy has no new ideas. He just recycles the old ones in new clothing. And so these are, these are three, three problems. I'll give you a long word. Do you like long words? It wouldn't be a Sunday morning without a long word, would it? Here's, here's your long word. Gnosticism. Go on, say that. Yeah. If, if, you, if you're from Liverpool, you can say it out of your nose, that sort of word. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to do it. What's Gnosticism? Well, it's kind of a mixture of, of all sorts of different ideas. But Gnosticism came into to this church, and you see it in churches now. We, we have the same problems in the body of Christ. Because what Gnosticism is, is the thought of knowledge and information is everything. Knowledge and information was all you needed for salvation. Um, and, they, and they took it a bit further, that, and they thought, like, they say anything material, if you had anything, it was evil. So you shouldn't have anything. And the only thing that mattered is your, the purity of your thoughts. So your thoughts were higher. And because they didn't think anything material was uh, spiritual or good, they then took the leap and said, well, Jesus never really came as a man. It was, he, 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 wasn't, he, he never came in a body. It was just an illusion. So when they, they said that when Jesus was walking around, he was walking around. It was just an illusion. 
because all this truth and all secrets have to be processed through what my mind can understand. That's Gnosticism. Now, that problem exists in the church today. It's called church that is pure knowledge or intellectual. And, you know, sometimes we have a real problem because we equate the word discipleship with information and learning. Discipleship has not very little to do with information and learning. It's got a lot more to do with doing and being like Christ. Uh, the mark of a mature believer is not how, you, how much you know. I don't know if you've, you've thought of that. A mark of a mature believer isn't how much you know. It's what, what is it? It's how much you obey, according to Jesus. So you can be a Christian believer for 30 seconds, having had hundreds of demons thrown out of you like legion, and Jesus goes, you're a mature believer. I'm going to send you out, and you're going to save 10 cities by the time I come back. And yet other people can learn and learn and learn and study and study and study and study and never become a mature believer because they don't do what Jesus asked them to do. And so they've got that first problem that they, they think it's all about the mind. It's all about, you know, it's rigorous intellectual application. Now, there's a place for that, but it's not the dominant thing. Because the letter kills and the spirit gives life. So you want the spirit as well. So that's the first problem. The second problem is they, they, they got the wrong idea of about how you sort sin out in your life and how you sort your flesh out in life. So they brought in loads of religious festivals, religious feasts, uh, all sorts of practices, observances as a way of subjecting the flesh. And they thought the more rules we have, the better it is that will sort out them evil, bad sinners that have just joined the church. And of course it didn't, it just made it all a lot worse because they all spent all the time concentrating on the sin instead of concentrating on the life of Christ in them. And law doesn't transform anybody, it just tells you how bad you are. Whereas grace and the Holy Spirit living in you changes you from the inside out. So they got that bit wrong. And the third thing they got wrong, and you go, oh, well, this is very strange, is angels. Well, what's that matter? Okay, here's, here's the issue that they had, and we, we'll get onto it later in the, in the, in the series, but in, in um, I'll read you, chapter 218, it's not on the slides. Um, he talks about this situation that they've got, a big, big problem. 218, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. They're intruding into, the, in, into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. That's a really strong word because what he's saying is this. You guys are saying you're super spiritual because you're having heavenly experiences and encounters with angels and you think you're into some big secret that nobody else has, but I'm here to tell you it's your flesh. And it's all in your mind because that's not what this belief's about. And sometimes we can pursue the experience so much that we lose the anchor in the word. It's not that angels aren't real, they are. But they're not to be worshipped and they're not, they're not a big deal. They're, they're there to help you. But, you know, there, there are people who, who think and, and talk all, all they ever talk about is, you know, how to encounter angels. And they have all ministries based on how to encounter angels. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. You're going to lead these people down a path where they're going to lose all anchor in reality if you go down there. 
And, and so they've got some problems in this church, would you agree? And that, that's the three problems there, and that's what Paul has to sort out. So where does he start? Well, let's go to, let's actually get into it. Colossians chapter 1. Are you with me so far? Are you enjoying this? Yeah. Did you know any of this? Some, that's good, some's good. Colossians 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, pay, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and by your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. There is so much in that. You go, well, it's just an introduction, isn't it? Let's get on to the real stuff. No. The, the, the thing is that what you, what you find with Colossians and why it's, you know, you can just get lost in, in just even one sentence of it. You can, like, God can teach you so much. Is it's really, I guess, dense or intense in the way Paul's thinking. He, he's trying to get as much clarity and as much across in as few words as he can. Because somebody has to, has to put all these scrolls under their arms and walk from wherever Paul is and, and, and cart them all the way to Colossae. And he wants to just like do one journey and not several. So he writes this one letter and he gets as much into it as he can. So we're going to have to work our way through it really slowly and pay attention to every word. We, it's not something you can skim. So... What's Paul saying? The first thing he talks about is things being by the will of God. By the will of God. And what he's saying is, I'm doing what I'm doing because it's God's will for me. It's what he wants me to do. And that guy, Epaphras, he's doing what he's doing because it's what God wants him to do. And he, and he understands that. It's really important for us as believers that we are doing what God wants us to do. We're actually doing God's will. How do you know something is God's will for you? Because what, we don't want to be uh, believers, according to that, that say, this is me getting on with my life, God. I'm asking you to bless what my plan is. We want to be... Well, I'm hoping we want to be believers that are saying, I want to be in your will, God, for my life. And here's the great thing about you. You're you. And here's an even better thing about you. You're not me. I should have got a hallelujah for that one. You're not me. <laughs> You're not me. So... You don't do what I do, and I don't do what you do. So how do we find out what, how, how to be in God's will? We listen to him. But there's also other signs and other things that can say, well, this is me, and I know I'm in God's will. For, for instance, one of the ways you know you're in God's will is you're going to be pretty good at what you're doing. And you might be pretty good at things that I'm not any good at. Herinta knows all about teeth. So if you want to know, look, look at that beautiful sparkly smile. That's what you get knowing all about teeth. 
I study God's word with different people. We, 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 we were good at different things. Arinta meets a whole group of people. I have no clue who they are, and she doesn't know who I know. We all know different groups of people. And um, here's the thing how, how this works. is When you're in God's will, what is hard to others is easier for you. So you find out the things that you can do. For instance, some of the stuff uh, we, we were talking last night, we, we had um, dinner at Paul and Esther's with Roger and Olive and there as well, and we were talking about um, what, we, what we do, what, what strengths there are. Now, so how do I know I'm in God's will? Well, here's, here's the thing. I, I'll let you into uh, like what my week looks like. Is that, that okay? Do, do anybody interested in what my week looks like? Okay, so this is, this is what my week looks like. I work Sunday mornings and that's it. <laughs> yeah, you always saw that, didn't you? No, here's what my week looks like. It's not your week, so you have to go with me a bit on this. So I'm, I'm an early riser. I get up. I, I'm up at like six, quarter past six. I'm out the door before seven. I go and sit in a coffee shop. I read my Bible. I might write one or two chapters of a book. I'll, I'll, I'll write a couple of thousand words. I might write a, a thing that, that we're going to do uh, for a video. I'll get my sermon ready. I'll get my sermon slides ready. And that's Monday morning. And you think, well, that's, that's, a, that's it. But then what else will I do? I'll, I'll go and meet people. I'll go and talk to people. I'll go and mentor people in churches in, in, in other towns that, that are leading their churches as part of that relationship group we have. So that might be an afternoon that I have. And the next morning, what am I doing? I'm writing stuff again. I'm doing Facebook. I'm dealing with Facebook comments and dealing with messages. And then I'm reading and thinking about where we're going to go as a church and, and what God would, wants us to do and what his heart is for us. And uh, then uh, I might be at a life group on Monday and I might be at life group. Well, I am at life group on Mondays. I'm at life group on Tuesdays. Wednesdays, I'll either go to a prayer meeting or another life group or I'll be seeing somebody or meeting somebody or discipling somebody. Thursdays, because I'm no good at singing, I don't go to musicians. But sometimes I stand outside the door looking in, thinking, one day, we're in heaven, I'll be able to sing. <laughs> but I don't do that. And, and my life is full of things. And then, you know, we, we might have one or two sessions a week for a couple of hours where Jules films short videos, life group resource, whatever. And then we'll have team meetings. And, and that's, my, that's what my life looks like. What the outcome of that is, is a huge amount of resource produced consistently every week. And a, and a lot of reading, a lot of understanding, a lot of studying, and a lot of discipling. You, got, you might think, well, how can you fit all that in? Here's the thing. It's really easy for me to do that. Because that's what I'm wired to do. You know, it's not difficult. That's how... I know I'm in God's will. So when hard stuff comes along, when, when challenges come along, I go, I know what I'm made for here. I know what my strengths are. I know what God wants me to do. And I'm not going to get knocked off that. And so we, we, we need to find out and understand from God how he wants to use us in the things that we're good at. And that's what Paul said. I'm, I'm being used in the things that I'm good at. And I'm, I'm here because of God's will. I'm doing what he's called me to do. It might not be your cup of tea, Paul's saying, but this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm called to do. 
And when you, when you know this, what, whatever it is, and uh, this it shouldn't even be a precursor because it's actually the way we find out what we're called to do. You've got to have a go at a few things. You, you, you know, <coughs> you're really going to be terribly annoyed with yourself if you get to the age of 85 and you're sat in a chair and you think, I never had a go at trying something different. I never had a go at finding out. I just went through day to day, week to week, month to month, and my life just drifted past. Christianity is about risk. Christianity is about attempting the impossible. Because that's the only place faith works in the impossible. It doesn't work in the stuff that you are just perfectly capable of doing. You've got to try a few things. You've got to take a few risks. You've got to step out in a few things. Face a few challenges. Have a go at some things. And just not settle for where we are. So that, that's the first thing. So the, the lesson from all of that is, well, I, I guess I'd put it this way. Let me put it the other way around. A lot of people never try anything because they're too worried in case it goes wrong. So they spend all the time thinking about what happens if it doesn't work. Well, what happens if it doesn't work? We'll try something else. And we'll keep on trying something else until something works. Jesus put it like this. I've gone completely off script. Jesus put it like this. Parable of the sower. He said, this is the way the kingdom works. You throw seed all over the place. Some of it lands here. Some of it lands there. Some of it goes in. Some of it gets eaten up and choked by weeds. And a little bit of it bears fruit. But to get your little bit of fruit, you've got to have a go at a lot of things. You've got to try a lot of things and find out what bears fruit. Well, why can't God just tell me? I don't know. That's not the way the kingdom works. Why? It's not the way the kingdom works because God wants us to rely on him and not on us. And if he just told us, like, that's the one thing that you've got to do and that'll work, we wouldn't rely on him. We'd just do it and rely on us. And that's my kind of like potted explanation of why it works like that. But that's the way the kingdom works. The kingdom works by scattering a lot of seed in your life, and some of it will produce fruit. And then Jesus says that's you follow the fruit. You invest where the fruit is. That's, that's what he says. So that's the first thing. Second thing that, that Paul puts in this really intense bit up front, he says, this is how we live. We live from a place of thanks. We give thanks for everything because without God, we'd have nothing. But we give thanks for everything because we have a good God who loves us and he loves us so much that he died for us to save us when we didn't want anything to do with him. And so we give thanks for everything. You know, I was, I was sat um, the other day and I was, I was sort of... Um, well, I was admiring Jules' hard work in our garden. And, and we've got these, these sunflowers that have grown up and they're a bit droopy now, but I've, I've enjoyed watching them, watching them grow. And I was sat there and I was just looking at these sunflowers and thinking, look, I am just so blessed. I'm so blessed to be here on a nice sunny day looking at these sunflowers. I'm just so blessed. And the birds were twittering in the air and it was lovely. And, and then the next day it rained. And I thought, I am so blessed, I am so blessed that that rain is coming down and watering that garden that's had not a lot of rain. 
And the next day, we had nothing in the cupboard for, for food, and I had to go to Tesco, and I thought, I'm so blessed that I can walk around Tesco and buy things. I'm just so blessed. And, and then I got up, got up the next morning, I got dressed, and I thought, I am so blessed. I've got clothes on. I'm so blessed. I, 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 yeah, you, you, you're all blessed now, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> buy that one. I looked in the mirror, and I thought, I'm so blessed. <laughs> But perhaps I could be a bit more blessed by combing my hair. <laughs> you know, we are so blessed. And Paul, all Paul's saying is, give thanks for it. Instead of looking at what you haven't got, look at what you have got and say thank you. Why? Because it does something in our heart that connects us to God when we say thank you. And so when we when we have this awareness of the goodness of God and the blessing of God in our lives, it seems to open up more. I remember, I, this, this isn't me, but I remember um, Joyce Meyer telling this story. You heard of Joyce Meyer? Tells this story, and she's talking about um, sort of a few years ago, and she was, she was praying, feeling very holy because she was praying, and uh, she, she was basically reaming off this list of things that God hadn't done and, and, and what, what she needed and, and that she hadn't got. And, you know, she, and she came out and she said, God, I just need you to do more. I need you to give me more. And, and she heard God really clearly say, well, you know, if you're already complaining about what I've already given you, why should I give you more so you can complain about it? And, and sometimes we, we do that. Instead of seeing how, what the good things we have, we always look at what we haven't got. And, and Paul's trying to refocus on, he's trying to say, there's no fruit in looking at what you haven't got yet. The fruit is in celebrating what you have got and what God has done and, and letting that stir your faith and stir what's in you. Okay, so then he, he comes out, uh, I'll just skip on a bit, so I'm, I'm missing a couple of slides. The next thing he says is that he's heard of their faith and love. Heard of their faith and love. That's verse 4. I was wondering, what do people out there hear about us? What, what do they hear about you? I do... Do believers, or do, do I as a believer, or you as a believer, is the first thing that people say to you is, wow, they're so full of faith and love. Because that's what they said about Jesus, and that's what they're saying about this church in Colossae. I've heard about your faith and love. Now, that, well, that word heard, heard of, means it's been reported to us. Paul said, I've had it reported back to me that you guys have a reputation for being really full of faith and love. How awesome would it be if that's the reputation that the church had today? Oh, not, not, not any particular church, all the churches. If, if Christianity was known for its faith and love. You know, the part of the issue we have, because we have this negative mentality, because we've not got this thank, thanking God for things and, and trusting him for things, we have this negative mentality so that people outside the church, they only know us for what we're against. 
and not for who we are for. They know for, for what we are against and not who we are for. They haven't heard of our faith and love. They've heard of our objection to what they're doing. And we, we're presenting the gospel wrong. We, we, we want to be, you know, we've got this mindset, I want to be radical, I want to fight for the Lord. Well, let people see your faith and love. Walk out some of the things in your life through faith. Have a few victories and then they'll see your faith. Do a few things for other people and they'll see your love. Then they'll see Jesus. Then their hearts will change. But you objecting to what they're doing isn't going to get you anywhere apart from their animosity. People need to see Christ in us. And that kind of brings me back to that thing I was saying at the start, is that when we abide in the word and his word abides in us, we, we dwell in it, we live it out so that it's visible. And then people can see it. You know, some people go, well, if I'm already saved and I'm already going to heaven and I'm saved by grace and it doesn't depend on my effort and, and what I can do and I can't earn God's favor and I, I can't, you know, because it's all a gift, what, what's the point of all the stuff that Paul's saying about don't be like that, be like this. Don't be like the sinners, be like this. Well, the point of it is this. Firstly, you can be different because you're a different person. You're not who you were before you became Christian. You're a new creation. You have the spirit of God in you. You can be different. But what, what Paul is repeatedly saying is, if this is real, the world outside should be able to see it. So you need to do something with it. And he's saying, it's so important we walk right, we walk well, we walk holy, not so that we can buy our way into heaven, but so the world sees the difference that God has made in our life, and they want it too. Our lifestyle is our evangelism style. Our lifestyle is the thing that, that we reach people by. I, I've just written a series that we're going to do in the new year called Surprise the World. And we're supposed to be so different in our lifestyle that the world wants what we've got. And the, the, the difference that the world can see is our faith and love. That's what they're zeroing in. That's what they're looking at. Are they seeing faith and love in us? So that's why Paul says that. And he says, the, the, the way that you can, the, the foundation that you have built that faith and love on is hope. Verse 5, he, he talks about because of your hope, because of the hope that you have. Let me, I'll just read that again. Verse 5. Because of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So why can we operate in faith and love? Why, why can we be people that can go through a few things, come out the other side? Why can we be people where the test does not defeat us, but where the test becomes our testimony? How can we, how can we be that sort of person? It's because we have hope. You see, I, 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 I guess some of us might, you know, in, in very sort of not 
not so excitable moments where there's nothing on telly. We read theology. We might read a theology book. And theologians have a word for faith, hope, and love together. They, they call it the theological virtues. The theological virtues. Paul called it something different. He called it the DNA of a Christian. Faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues. Paul says, DNA of a Christian. Now, he didn't use the word DNA because he hadn't discovered it, but it goes right through everything he's saying. He says, these are the characteristics of a Christian. Faith, hope, love. And our Christian life is a response to the work of God in us. And, and that response is, is from the longing and the expectation and the desires that the Holy Spirit stirs in our hearts. The Bible talks about hope as the anchor for the soul. My anchor is in you and my hope is in you and all that sort of stuff. Now, here's something interesting. We use hope differently to the way they used hope when they, they even translated the, the first versions of the Bible in English. We, we have Hope has gone like all wishy-washy. It's kind of wishful thinking. And, you know, sometimes kind of blind optimism. That, that sort of... Uh, you know, it's, it would be really nice if this happened. I'm wishing for it. And we call it hope. That's not what the Bible means by hope. I was, um, uh, I, I guess, a week or two ago, I uh, put up uh, about the series that we're starting, the Bible school this night. By the way, if, you, if, you, if, you wanna, if you've not been to Bible school before or you want to come along just for these three-week series, about the, the role of women in the church and ministry and, and the family and all the rest of it, um, then, then just come along tonight. But I, I'd put up the, and the advertising little thingy, boost post, whatever, and somebody is he, he, a taxi driver in London. He, I don't know how he got hold of it. He's not a friend of mine or anything, but he got hold of it, and he decided that he was going to have a, like, a complete rant about how it was all fairy tales and God wasn't real, because it... Um, and, and all that sort of stuff. And then he got, he, he found the Arthur Menchez thing, the knowing and experiencing God, and he went off on a complete rant on, on, on about the title of this, and you can't know and experience something that doesn't exist, and it's all you're completely deluded and all that sort of stuff. And so I had a, like a little private message chat with him because I thought, well, you know, good. And he said, well, I'm an atheist, you know, and anything and you guys you just blind faith believing in fairy tales and believing in nothing and I said I don't believe in nothing I don't believe in nothing I don't have blind faith because blind faith has no hope we anchor on our hope you see I don't believe in I don't believe when there is no evidence. I believe because of the evidence. We don't have blind faith. We have evidence-based faith that we then believe. And when it comes down to it, my faith is anchored in Christ. And it's anchored in the fact, fact of the resurrection of a man who was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he changed so many lives that by 40 years later, the Apostle Paul can turn around and say the gospel has been preached 
and churches have been planted throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire. That's not a fairy tale. This is, this is a man whose resurrection is mentioned in secular history books of the time by secular historians. This is a man who took, where, where 12 apostles, well, 11, one had hung himself by this time, all in hiding, see the risen Christ, and he turns their lives around, and they go to the far ends of the earth and give their lives for him right across the continent. This isn't lack of evidence. This is faith on evidence. And, and I believe because of fact, not blind optimism. You see, hope is linked to evidence. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says this, In his great mercy, God has given his new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into the inheritance that never perishes, never spoils and never fails. And this inheritance is kept for you in heaven. So my hope and my inheritance is linked to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, the evidence of the resurrection is clear. It's compelling. Everybody examines it, changes their mind and goes, I can't deny it. It's only when people don't examine it that they have issues. You see, when I have doubts, and, and doubts do come. And, you know, I, as I said over the summer, I'm learning to doubt my doubts. It's a good practice, doubt your doubts. And, and the way I doubt my doubts is I keep going back to that same place and I keep going back and going, Jesus rose from the dead. Historical proven fact. That's where my faith rests. Paul says that's, his, that's the thing that matters because if he wasn't raised from the dead, our faith is futile. And so it goes back to an historical fact. It, it's, not, it's not lacking in evidence. There's evidence everywhere. Indeed. And here's kind of the problem, the thing that I wanted to finish with. It's not a problem, it's a problem if we do it. But oftentimes we can anchor our lives to things that have no power. We can anchor our lives to things that have no hope. You know, we can anchor our lives to Auntie Betty who tells us it'll never work, it'll never work. And you go, it'll never work, Auntie Betty said so. And, and then we, we, we'll have, have an issue in our life and we'll, we'll consult with 64 friends and, uh, you know, like you consult with thousands of friends on Facebook. Now, what do you think of my problem? And they'll all have an opinion. And it's really difficult because you've got like 64 different opinions. Where do you anchor? We, we anchor our lives in a lot of things when our hope is meant to be based on Christ. And... When we base our hope in Christ, things that are impossible become possible. We overcome the world by our faith. We become people who are more than conquerors in whatever's going on. We, we know that we can never be pulled apart away or separated from the love of God. We know that greater is he who is in us than he is in the world. We know that as he is now, so are we in this world. And, and we anchor in that, and that gives us hope, and then our faith works. So, what I want you to, to, to kind of take away from all this is that 
We need to be people who anchor in Christ. Anchor is that hope that we're in. And then we need to live from that place. We need to really be disciples. Really disciples. Not Christians, not churchgoers, not people who are asking God to bless their life, but really disciples. Because when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, life has a way of making sense. When we take our eyes off Jesus, it has a way of not making any sense. And so that's really what I want to leave you with. I want you to leave you with that challenge. You know, and, it, and if we respond to that challenge, we become a people where people will go, when I encounter them, I see faith and love. That's who that's what I see. And and people start reporting faith and love. You know, I I I've I've heard just in the few days I've been, you know, stories of incredible generosity and, and care and love that people have done in the church. Because when you come back up holiday, you, you, you start to hear stories. And I think that's that's amazing. And I just want to encourage you all to keep doing it. And if you haven't done it, step out, have a go, take a few risks. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you gave us your son to redeem us, to buy us back, to set us free, to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. And you place your spirit in us, your glory in us. And Lord, I pray that that you would... um, I I yield my heart to you right now that you would anchor my faith in the hope of you. But more than that, Lord, that I would become somebody who dwells and lives in your word and from your word. And that when people encounter me, what they'll say is I saw the faith and the love. I want to be that sort of person. And I give you free reign to to work in my heart and and work in my soul to produce that person. Amen? Amen.